Section 26 of Natural Theology by William Paley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 23 of The Personality of the Deity, Part 2. The minds of most men are fond of what they call a principle, and of the appearance of simplicity in accounting for phenomena. Yet this principle, this simplicity, resides merely in the name, which name, after all, comprises, perhaps, under it, a diversified, multifarious, or progressive operation, distinguishable into parts. The power in organized bodies, of producing bodies like themselves, is one of these principles. Give a philosopher this, and he can get on. But he does not reflect what this mode of production, this principle, if such he choose to call it, requires, how much it presupposes, what an apparatus of instruments, some of which are strictly mechanical, is necessary to its success what a train it includes of operations and changes, one succeeding another, one related to another, one ministering to another, all advancing by intermediate and, frequently, by sensible steps to their ultimate result. Yet, because the whole of this complicated action is wrapped up in a single term, generation, we are to set it down as an elementary principle, and to suppose that, when we have resolved the things which we see into this principle, we have sufficiently accounted for their origin, without the necessity of a designing, intelligent creator. The truth is, generation is not a principle, but a process. We might as well call the casting of metals a principle. We might, so far as appears to me, as well call spinning and weaving principles, and then, referring the texture of cloths, the fabric of muslins and calicoes, the patterns of diapers and damasks, to these as principles, pretend to dispense with intention, thought, and contrivance on the part of the artist, or to dispense, indeed, with the necessity of any artist at all, either in the manufacturing of the article, or in the fabrication of the machinery by which the manufacture was carried on. And, after all, how, or in what sense, is it true that animals produce their like? A butterfly with a proboscis instead of a mouth, with four wings and six legs, produces a hairy caterpillar with jaws and teeth and fourteen feet. A frog produces a tadpole. A black beetle, with gauze wings and a crusty covering, produces a white, smooth, soft worm. An ephemeron fly, a codbait maggot. These, by a progress through different stages of life and action and enjoyment, and in each state provided with implements and organs appropriated to the temporary nature which they bear, arrive at last at the form and fashion of the parent animal. But all this is process, not principle, and proves, moreover, that the property of animated bodies of producing their like belongs to them not as a primordial property, not by any blind necessity in the nature of things, but as the effect of economy, wisdom, and design. Because the property itself assumes diversities and submits to deviations, dictated by intelligible utilities and serving distinct purposes of animal happiness. The opinion which would consider generation as a principle in nature, and which would assign this principle as the cause, or endeavor to satisfy our minds with such a cause, of the existence of organized bodies, is confuted, in my judgment, not only by every mark of contrivance discoverable in those bodies, for which it gives us no contriver, offers no account whatever, but also by the farther consideration that things generated possess a clear relation to things not generated. If it were merely one part of a generated body bearing a relation to another part of the same body, as the mouth of an animal to the throat, the throat to the stomach, 
the stomach to the intestines, those to the recruiting of the blood, and, by means of the blood, to the nourishment of the whole frame, or, if it were only one generated body bearing a relation to another generated body, as the sexes of the same species to each other, animals of prey to their prey, herbivorous and granivorous animals to the plants or seeds upon which they feed, it might be contended that the whole of this correspondency was attributable to generation, the common origin from which these substances proceeded. But what shall we say to agreements which exist between things generated and things not generated? Can it be doubted, was it ever doubted, but that the lungs of animals bear a relation to the air as a permanently elastic fluid? They act in it and by it. They cannot act without it. Now, if generation produced the animal, it did not produce the air, yet their properties correspond. The eye is made for light, and light for the eye. The eye would be of no use without light, and light perhaps of little without eyes. Yet one is produced by generation, the other not. The ear depends upon undulations of air. Here are two sets of motions, first, of the pulses of the air, secondly, of the drum, bones, and nerves of the ear, sets of motions bearing an evident reference to each other, yet the one, and the apparatus for the one, produced by the intervention of generation, the other altogether independent of it. If it be said that the air, the light, the elements, the world itself, is generated, I answer that I do not comprehend the proposition. If the term mean anything, similar to what it means when applied to plants or animals, the proposition is certainly without proof and, I think, draws as near to absurdity as any proposition can do which does not include a contradiction in its terms. I am at a loss to conceive how the formation of the world can be compared to the generation of an animal. If the term generation signify something quite different from what it signifies on ordinary occasions, it may, by the same latitude, signify anything, in which case a word or phrase taken from the language of Otaheite would convey as much theory concerning the origin of the universe as it does to talk of its being generated. We know a cause, intelligence, adequate to the appearances which we wish to account for. We have this cause continually producing similar appearances, yet rejecting this cause, the sufficiency of which we know, and the action of which is constantly before our eyes, we are invited to resort to suppositions, destitute of a single fact for their support, and confirmed by no analogy with which we are acquainted. Were it necessary to inquire into the motives of men's opinions, I mean their motives separate from their arguments, I should almost suspect that, because the proof of a deity drawn from the constitution of nature is not only popular but vulgar, which may arise from the cogency of the proof and be indeed its highest recommendation, and because it is a species almost of puerility to take up with it, for these reasons, minds which are habitually in search of invention and originality, feel a resistless inclination to strike off into other solutions and other expositions. The truth is that many minds are not so indisposed to anything which can be offered to them, as they are to the flatness of being content with common reasons, and what is most to be lamented, minds conscious of superiority are the most liable to this repugnancy. The suppositions here alluded to all agree in one character. They all endeavor to dispense with the necessity in nature of a particular personal intelligence, that is to say, with the exertion of an intending, contriving mind in the structure and formation of the organized constitutions which the world contains. They would resolve all productions into unconscious energies of a like kind in that respect with attraction, magnetism, electricity, etc., without anything further. In this the old system of atheism and the new agree, 
and i much doubt whether the new schemes have advanced anything upon the old or done more than change the terms of the nomenclature for instance i could never see the difference between the antiquated system of atoms and buffon's organic molecules this philosopher having made a planet by knocking off from the sun a piece of melted glass in consequence of the stroke of a comet and having set it in motion by the same stroke both round its own axis and the sun finds his next difficulty to be how to bring plants and animals upon it in order to solve this difficulty we are to suppose the universe replenished with particles endowed with life but without organization or senses of their own and endowed also with a tendency to marshal themselves into organized forms the concourse of these particles by virtue of this tendency but without intelligence will or direction for i do not find that any of these qualities are ascribed to them has produced the living forms which we now see very few of the conjectures which philosophers hazard upon these subjects have more of pretension in them than the challenging you to show the direct impossibility of the hypothesis in the present example there seemed to be a positive objection to the whole scheme upon the very face of it which was that if the case were as here represented new combinations ought to be perpetually taking place new plants and animals or organized bodies which were neither ought to be starting up before our eyes every day for this however our philosopher has an answer whilst so many forms of plants and animals are already in existence and consequently so many internal moulds as he calls them are prepared and at hand the organic particles run into these moulds and are employed in supplying an accession of substance to them as well for their growth as for their propagation by which means things keep their ancient course but says the same philosopher should any general loss or destruction of the present constitution of organized bodies take place the particles for want of moulds into which they might enter would run into different combinations and replenish the waste with new species of organized substances is there any history to countenance this notion is it known that any destruction has been so repaired any desert thus repeopled so far as i remember the only natural appearance mentioned by our author by way of fact whereon to build his hypothesis is the formation of worms in the intestines of animals which is here ascribed to the coalition of superabundant organic particles floating about in the first passages and which have combined themselves into these simple animal forms for want of internal moulds or of vacancies in those moulds into which they might be received the thing referred to is rather a species of facts than a single fact as some other cases may with equal reason be included under it but to make it a fact at all or in any sort applicable to the question we must begin with asserting an equivocal generation contrary to analogy and without necessity contrary to an analogy which accompanies us to the very limits of our knowledge or inquiries for wherever either in plants or animals we are able to examine the subject we find procreation from a parent form without necessity for i apprehend that it is seldom difficult to suggest methods by which the eggs or spawn or yet invisible rudiments of these vermin may have obtained a passage into the cavities in which they are found footnote i trust i may be excused for not citing as another fact which is to confirm the hypothesis a grave assertion of this writer that the branches of trees upon which the stag feeds break out again in his horns such facts merit no discussion End of footnote add to this that their constancy to their species which i believe is as regular in these as in the other vermes decides the question against our philosopher if in truth any question remained upon the subject 
Lastly, these wonder-working instruments, these internal molds, what are they after all? What, when examined, but a name without signification, unintelligible if not self-contradictory, at the best differing in nothing from the essential forms of the Greek philosophy? One short sentence of Buffon's work exhibits his scheme as follows. Quote, when this nutritious and prolific matter, which is diffused throughout all nature, passes through the internal mold of an animal or vegetable, and finds a proper matrix or receptacle, it gives rise to an animal or vegetable of the same species. Does any reader annex a meaning to the expression internal mold in this sentence? Ought it then to be said that, though we have little notion of an internal mold, we have not much more of a designing mind? The very contrary of this assertion is the truth. When we speak of an artificer or an architect, we talk of what is comprehensible to our understanding and familiar to our experience. We use no other terms than what refer us for their meaning to our consciousness and observation, what express the constant objects of both, whereas names like that we have mentioned refer us to nothing, excite no idea, convey a sound to the ear, but I think do no more. Another system, which has lately been brought forward, and with much ingenuity, is that of appetencies. The principle and the short account of the theory is this. Pieces of soft, ductile matter, being endued with propensities or appetencies for particular actions, would by continual endeavors, carried on through a long series of generations, work themselves gradually into suitable forms, and at length acquire, though perhaps by obscure and almost imperceptible improvements, an organization fitted to the action which their respective propensities led them to exert. A piece of animated matter, for example, that was endued with a propensity to fly, though ever so shapeless, though no other we will suppose than a round ball to begin with, would, in a course of ages, if not in a million of years, perhaps in a hundred millions of years, for our theorists having eternity to dispose of are never sparing in time, acquire wings. The same tendency to locomotion in an aquatic animal, or rather an animated lump which might happen to be surrounded by water, would end in the production of fins. In a living substance, confined to the solid earth, would put out legs and feet, or, if it took a different turn, would break the body into ringlets and conclude by crawling upon the ground. Although I have introduced the mention of this theory into this place, I am unwilling to give to it the name of an atheistic scheme for two reasons. First, because, so far as I am able to understand it, the original propensities and the numberless varieties of them, so different in this respect from the laws of mechanical nature, which are few and simple, are, in the plant itself, attributed to the ordination and appointment of an intelligent and designing creator. Secondly, because, likewise, that large postulatum, which is all along assumed and presupposed, the faculty in living bodies of producing other bodies organized like themselves, seems to be referred to the same cause, at least is not attempted to be accounted for by any other. In one important respect, however, the theory before us coincides with atheistic systems, viz., in that, in the formation of plants and animals, in the structure and use of their parts, it does away final causes. Instead of the parts of a plant or animal, or the particular structure of the parts, having been intended for the action or the use to which we see them applied, According to this theory, they have themselves grown out of that action, sprung from that use. The theory, therefore, dispenses with that which we insist upon, the necessity, in each particular case, of an intelligent designing mind for the contriving and determining of the forms which organized bodies bear. Give our philosopher these appetencies, give him a portion of living irritable matter, 
a nerve or the clipping of a nerve, to work upon, give also to his incipient or progressive forms the power in every stage of their alteration of propagating their like, and, if he is to be believed, he could replenish the world with all the vegetable and animal productions which we at present see in it. The scheme under consideration is open to the same objection with other conjectures of a similar tendency, viz. a total defect of evidence. No changes like those which the theory requires have ever been observed. All the changes in Ovid's metamorphoses might have been effected by these appetencies if the theory were true. Yet not an example, nor the pretense of an example, is offered of a single change being known to have taken place. Nor is the order of generation obedient to the principle upon which this theory is built. The mammae of the male have not vanished by inusitation. Nec curtorum per multa secula judaeorum propagini deest preputium. Footnote. I confess myself totally at a loss to guess at the reason, either final or efficient, for this part of the animal frame unless there be some foundation for an opinion, of which I draw the hint from a paper of Mr. Everard Holm, Philosophical Transactions, 1799, page 2, viz. that the mammae of the fetus may be formed before the sex is determined. End of footnote. It is easy to say, and it has been said, that the alternative process is too slow to be perceived, that it has been carried on through tracts of immeasurable time and that the present order of things is the result of a gradation of which no human record can trace the steps. It is easy to say this, and yet it is still true that the hypothesis remains destitute of evidence. The analogies which have been alleged are of the following kind. The bunch of a camel is said to be no other than the effect of carrying burthens, a service in which the species has been employed from the most ancient times of the world. The first race, by the daily loading of the back, would probably find a small grumous tumor to be formed in the flesh of that part. The next progeny would bring this tumor into the world with them. The life to which they were destined would increase it. The cause which first generated the tubercle, being continued, it would go on, through every succession, to augment its size till it attained the form and the bulk under which it now appears. This may serve for one instance. Another, and that also of the passive sort, is taken from certain species of birds. Birds of the crane kind, as the crane itself, the heron, bittern, stork, have in general their thighs bare of feathers. This privation is accounted for from the habit of wading in water, and from the effect of that element to check the growth of feathers upon these parts. In consequence of which, the health and vegetation of the feathers declined through each generation of the animal, the tender down, exposed to cold and wetness, became weak and thin and rare, till the deterioration ended in the result which we see of absolute nakedness. I will mention a third instance, because it is drawn from an active habit, as the two last were from passive habits, and that is the pouch of the pelican. The description which naturalists give of this organ is as follows. Quote, from the lower edges of the under chap hangs a bag, reaching from the whole length of the bill to the neck, which is said to be capable of containing fifteen quarts of water. This bag the bird has the power of wrinkling up into the hollow of the underchap. When the bag is empty, it is not seen. But when the bird has fished with success, it is incredible to what an extent it is often dilated. The first thing the pelican does in fishing is to fill the bag, and then it returns to digest its burthen at leisure. The bird preys upon the large fishes and hides them by dozens in its pouch. When the bill is opened to its widest extent, a person may run his head into the bird's mouth and conceal it in this monstrous pouch, 
thus adapted for very singular purposes. Now this extraordinary confirmation is nothing more, say our philosophers, than the result of habit, not of the habit or effort of a single pelican, or of a single race of pelicans, but of a habit perpetuated through a long series of generations. The pelican soon found the conveniency of reserving in its mouth, when its appetite was glutted, the remainder of its prey, which is fish. The fullness produced by this attempt, of course, stretched the skin which lies between the underchaps, as being the most yielding part of the mouth. Every distension increased the cavity. The original bird, and many generations which succeeded him, might find difficulty enough in making the pouch answer this purpose, but future pelicans, entering upon life with a pouch derived from their progenitors of considerable capacity, would more readily accelerate its advance to perfection by frequently pressing down the sack with the weight of fish which it might now be made to contain. These, or of this kind, are the analogies relied upon. Now, in the first place, the instances themselves are unauthenticated by testimony, and, in theory, to say the least of them, open to great objections. Whoever read of camels without bunches, or with bunches less than those with which they are at present usually formed? A bunch, not unlike the camels, is found between the shoulders of the buffalo, of the origin of which it is impossible to give the account which is here given. In the second example, why should the application of water, which appears to promote and thicken the growth of feathers upon the bodies and breasts of geese and swans and other waterfowls, have divested of this covering the thighs of cranes? The third instance, which appears to me as plausible as any that can be produced, has this against it, that it is a singularity restricted to the species, whereas if it had its commencement in the cause and manner which have been assigned, the like confirmation might be expected to take place in other birds which feed upon fish. How comes it to pass that the pelican alone was the inventress, and her descendants the only inheritors, of this curious resource? But it is the less necessary to controvert the instances themselves, as it is a straining of analogy beyond all limits of reason and credibility, to assert that birds and beasts and fish, with all their variety and complexity of organization, have been brought into their forms, and distinguished into their several kinds and natures, by the same process, even if that process could be demonstrated or had ever been actually noticed, as might seem to serve for the gradual generation of a camel's bunch or a pelican's pouch. The solution, when applied to the works of nature generally, is contradicted by many of the phenomena, and totally inadequate to others. The ligaments or strictures by which the tendons are tied down at the angles of the joints could by no possibility be formed by the motion or exercise of the tendons themselves, by any appetency exciting these parts into action, or by any tendency arising therefrom. The tendency is all the other way, the conatus in constant opposition to them. Length of time does not help the case at all, but the reverse. The valves also in the blood vessels could never be formed in the manner which our theorist proposes. The blood, in its right and natural course, has no tendency to form them. When obstructed or refluent, it has the contrary. These parts could not grow out of their use, though they had eternity to grow in. The senses of animals appear to me altogether incapable of receiving the explanation of their origin which this theory affords. Including under the word sense, the organ and the perception, we have no account of either. How will our philosopher get at vision, or make an eye? How should the blind animal affect sight, of which blind animals, we know, have neither conception nor desire? Affecting it, by what operation of its will, by what endeavor to see, could it so determine the fluids of its body as to inchoate the formation of an eye, 
or suppose the eye formed, would the perception follow. The same of the other senses. And this objection holds its force, ascribe what you will to the hand of time, to the power of habit, to changes too slow to be observed by man, or brought within any comparison which he is able to make of past things with the present. Concede what you please to these arbitrary and unattested suppositions, how will they help you? Here is no inception, no laws, no course, no powers of nature which prevail at present, nor any analogous to these, would give commencement to a new sense. And it is in vain to inquire how that might proceed which could never begin. I think the senses to be the most inconsistent with the hypothesis before us of any part of the animal frame. But other parts are sufficiently so. The solution does not apply to the parts of animals which have little in them of motion. If we could suppose joints and muscles to be gradually formed by action and exercise, what action or exercise could form a skull or fill it with brains? No effort of the animal could determine the clothing of its skin. What conatus could give prickles to the porcupine or hedgehog, or to the sheep its fleece? In the last place, what do these appetencies mean when applied to plants? I am not able to give a signification to the term which can be transferred from animals to plants, or which is common to both. Yet a no less successful organization is found in plants than what obtains in animals. A solution is wanted for one as well as the other. Upon the whole, after all the schemes and struggles of a reluctant philosophy, the necessary resort is to a deity. The marks of design are too strong to be gotten over. Design must have had a designer. That designer must have been a person. That person is God. End of section 26